It's hard to get into any conversation about competition in China without addressing whether competition in a particular industry is fair. Do foreign companies in China and Chinese companies in foreign markets play by the same rules? In a report from the Rhodium Group released last spring, Dr. Agatha Kratz and her colleagues took a look into how Chinese firms have what they term a home advantage, and how that advantage at home has impacts for Chinese companies and their competitors not only in China, but also abroad. From the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Ian Hutchinson, and this is the China Business Review Podcast. So in, in your report, when you say home advantage, what exactly does that mean in the context of the Chinese market? In the context of China, what we call a home advantage um, is a competitive advantage that certain Chinese firms, not all, but certain Chinese firms, gain from having access to a vast, extremely vast Chinese market, um, but restricted market. Um, let me replace that a little bit. Um, in China, in a number of sectors, um, Chinese firms face a combination of a very, very large Chinese market. Think about the 5G market. China is now 50% of the global market for 5G. Um, so a huge Chinese market, but a market that has very high formal and informal barriers to foreign competition. And so those firms find themselves somewhat protected on that massive home market. Um, and the combination of both of these factors, so a closed market and a big market, can create a very substantial competitive advantage for those Chinese firms um, in ways that are very similar actually to subsidies of state support, but just doesn't have that name and works in slightly different ways. Um, and the reference to subsidies here is actually not anodyne, I, I make it on purpose because um, a lot of the conversation about China's economic practices, its industrial policy has revolved around the issue of subsidies. Uh, we're hearing about a 301 investigation on subsidies at the moment. Uh, we have Europe working on a foreign subsidy instrument. It's all about subsidies, right? And when we think about China's economic practices, that's, that's, that's the word that comes out the most. The thing is, and the point we make in our paper is that, Subsidies are actually not the only way that China's economic policy distorts the playing field in China and globally. It's not either uh, the most necessarily the most distortive factor in China. As a matter of fact, and this is our strong belief, and from speaking to industry for this report, we spoke to the rail industry, we spoke to the 5G industry, we spoke to the solar industry, the wind industry. And, and what we understand you know, from them is that even if you got completely read of subsidies um, in all of those industries, if those were completely scrapped, there would still be a strong Chinese competitive advantage, Chinese firms competitive advantage from the advantages that come from a home advantage. Um, so this is to say that China's system of economic policies favor Chinese players in other ways than just pure subsidies. And this is what we're trying to say here in that report and to underline, um, to, be, to be thinking about the issues with China's economic system more broadly than just from a from a pure subsidy stance. So beyond subsidies, how does this kind of walled garden situation work in practice then? So the way it works is firms that have a favored access to, once again, a massive home market uh, and one with very limited foreign competition, um, those firms have or can gain six potential sources of competitive advantage. And it's a little bit different from one industry to the other. Um, firms, once again in rail, will, will get uh, slightly different advantages from their home advantage than um, companies in wind. 
but there are six main forms of that competitive advantage. First, when companies dominate a huge home market, yet you know restricted home market, um, often they will be able to generate greater revenues and global market shares than they would under open market conditions. Very simply put, if there's no foreign companies in China competing against those companies, those are market shares that will go to Chinese, um, to Chinese firms. So simple as that, greater revenues. Um, and you know, if those firms are well-run, if they have a nice bottom line, if they're uh, relatively efficient, then those higher revenues will turn potentially into greater profits. And this is where it gets advantageous because the higher your profits um, in those, in those R&D intensive, especially industries, um, the more you can reinvest well in R&D. And this is one of the cases we take in the report. You know, We looked at Huawei's um, uh, uh, financial statement. We looked at Ericsson and Nokia's financial statements. And you know, just over the past five years, Huawei actually spent 20 billion US dollar more on R&D than Ericsson and Nokia combined. So the higher revenues, if the company is just slightly, uh, you know, uh, not slightly, but, but well enough managed, those higher revenue can turn into higher profit and can turn into higher spending on R&D. And that's just crucial in the kinds of industries we're speaking about here. And then higher profits can also be reinvested in international market access, international market penetrations, because, you know, if you have a little bit more of a cushion, financial cushion at home, then you can go abroad and you can propose lower prices, more flexible packages, more advantageous tailored offerings. And that has a huge impact on uh, your ability to, to capture global market shares. Um, so that's, you know, the second, the second way that the home advantage works. The third way is that the, the biggest your market and the biggest your company, um, the more product credibility you have. Um, and let me explain this. A company like Huawei, who's been installing the most 5G stations in the whole of the world, when going abroad, will have tremendous credibility um, that their product has been trialed, has been used, has been tested, much more so than companies that don't have the same market access, don't have the same market size, don't have the same revenues. And that's super important, especially in the industries that work with public procurement markets, because in those conditions, you need to absolutely convince tendering authorities that you are credible because they're taking a bet on you on usually very, very big, very large uh, contracts. And so they wanna be sure that your products are trial, that they're gonna work um, and that they're not gonna waste taxpayer money. So very important. And in a similar way, um, you, you know, as, as, a, as a large international company with high revenues, with high profit, you're also a more credible and resilient vendor. Um, and what I mean by that is that once again, selling to public authorities, public tendering authorities, um, you will be trusted if you're big and profitable, you will be trusted to still be alive in five or 10 years when the contract comes to a close, um, the equipment contract comes to a close. So that has a huge impact um, on uh, your international competitiveness. And finally, and that's a, that's a big point, especially in the rail industry, we found um, the bigger you are, the more you might be able to achieve 
lower production costs, um, especially because of economies of scale. You know, simply, you're going to be able to use machines more. You're going to be able to reduce wastage. You're going to be able to increase automation. And therefore, you're just going to be able to have lower prices. And so, you know, those four advantages, um, when, when you combine them or when they combine, you know, uh, to, when you combine two or three of them, can give you uh, a pretty significant competitive advantage in China, of course, but abroad, uh, most importantly. Okay, so so let me play devil's advocate just a little bit here, because the, the question that comes to my mind is, how different would this home advantage look for Chinese companies if they didn't have the same explicit state support, but you know the Chinese market is still really massive, and it's probably fair to say that a lot of you know a lot of citizens of countries prefer domestically produced products. And you can think of you know Americans like to buy American-made goods, and you know China is no exception there. So I mean, how, how do you disentangle that explicit state support from what might be just kind of a natural preference of of consumers to buy their own country's goods? So I think I think it still have a slightly similar effect if there was a consumer preference, of course, for the, the national brand. And there is a, a, a preference for the national brand, of course. Um, but of course, closing off your market formally or informally just puts that out of the window. Um, that, that's, that's just not even an option anymore. And so you, you don't even have uh, the ability as a foreign firm um, to be in the country where the biggest market is for pretty much any equipment good today, to be honest. And so, you know, for companies like Ericsson and Nokia, um, they will fight even for 5 or 10 or 15% of the Chinese market because even that contributes to their ability to scale up, their ability to achieve economies of scales. And so uh, a, a completely open market or a market with no formal or informal barrier, if it could be captured at least by 15 or at, at 15 or 20% by foreign firms, that would already be huge help uh, to foreign competitors. But, you know, in markets like rail, um, this is just impossible. This is just out of the question. Um, and so you are in a situation where whether or not consumer prefer uh, their home products um, is, is not relevant. Um, the whole market just naturally and kind of artificially actually goes to uh, foreign companies. Okay, so so then how does this home advantage affect foreign companies? So I know your report that you wrote is, is mostly focused on European firms and we are mostly focused on US firms, but I imagine there are probably some takeaways that will apply to both groups. I mean, it's 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 almost completely similar uh, what, what happens to foreign firms, US firms and, and European firms. It depends a little bit on, on the topics. Of course, we picked sectors where European firms are European firms are particularly strong, um, but but the phenomenon is the same. Um, Chinese companies that benefit from a home advantage, which besides you know sometimes can be combined with state support, direct state support. So back to the idea of subsidies, um, but Chinese companies benefiting from a home advantage uh, will be able to offer three things. They will be able to offer cheaper products because you know they've achieved economies of scales, um, and so they have just cheaper production costs, or because they have very high profits and revenues that means that they can kind of cross subsidize the cost of their products when they go abroad. Um, So that's the first part. The second part is they're going to be able to offer more innovative products because as I said earlier, they're going to be able to invest that much more in R&D. There's of course a huge question about the efficiency of R&D in China, the efficiency of patent production, the efficiency of the money that's being poured into research. Um, But at the end of the day, if you you spend 20 billion more over 
over just five years, um, you will be able to offer very innovative products, maybe, maybe more so than uh, you would have without that home advantage. And finally, and that's quite important and people think about it much less, but the third, the third way that this gives you an advantage is you're going to be able to offer more flexible products or more flexible offering. So if you're a rail company and you want to sell to the Mexican government and they want you to make amendments to uh, your blueprints, to your models, you're going to have more flexibility um, as a Chinese company with a huge protected home market um, to do so because you have the profits, you have the, once again, financial cushion um, to, to cross-subsidize that redesign of certain of your products. And that's hugely important um, for, for certain countries, for certain tender authorities. So those are the three advantages you're going to get. Um, a lot of people think about price and they're, and they're right to think about price. First and foremost, we looked at, once again, the telecommunication industry, the rail industry, and systematically Chinese players come in with prices at 10 to 30% below um, the first best competitor after them. So that's just significant, uh, of course. And the result of that is they're able to capture global market shares um, much faster and much more significantly potentially than um, European or, or um, US companies. In the solar sector, Chinese firms have grown from about 33% of the global PV cell production market, you know, a decade ago to 76% today. Um, and that's probably the starkest of our example, but, you know, that can lead to just decimating whole national industries. Think about Germany's PV industry um, that has a tremendous, very negative effect. Of course, in the telecommunication sector, we're seeing um, a company like Huawei, you know, go from 20% uh, market share, global market share to 30% global market share in just six years. Um, and that's also significant, uh, that 10% uh, is, is tremendously important. Um, and you have the same in the rolling stock sector, in the rail sector, CRC, you know, CRC's global market share has, did, has grown tenfold over the past decade. And it was from a low base, granted, um, but that's just mind-blowingly fast. Um, so those are the main, those are the main effects. And, you know, in, in all of the sectors, the result of it has been massive reorganization in the industry. You've had mergers um, in, in the telecommunication industry, in the in the solar industry, in the rail industry with Alstom and Bombardier merging uh, recently. And the effect has been the same on US companies and, and US dominated sectors, uh, very, very similar. Okay, so, so you've listed a few big industries like wind, solar, rail, for example. I, I'm assuming these impacts are not equal across sectors. I mean, I imagine a retail goods company is gonna have you know different experience and different exposure to this you know, compared to a company that works in semiconductors, for example. Yeah, exactly. And that's something to understand um, about our report. And that's something to understand about the concept of, of, of a home advantage, that it's not in all sectors. Um, you know, many sectors in China are open to competition and there's no denying that. And so here we're really focusing on those few sectors that are very tightly controlled and closed off through formal and informal barriers. Um, and then not all sectors will reap advantages from scale. Um, there are just, you know, typical, typical sectors uh, that don't get that much more productive, don't get production costs that much lower uh, just because they're bigger. 
So that doesn't apply to those two categories. Um, and then, you know, even in sectors where you have economies of scales, you have a vast market, you have a protected home market, you don't always see Chinese firms take an advantage. Think about um, the aircraft industry. We haven't seen for the moment, I mean, knock on wood, but we haven't seen a, a, a Chinese competitor emerge that is credibly um, competing with Boeing and Airbus. Same for the car industry. Um, and I'm speaking here about, of, of course, about ICE rather than uh, new energy vehicles, but we haven't seen Chinese firms emerge the way we've uh, seen them emerge in, in those other industry we cover. So sometimes even where there is everything needed for there to be a home advantage, um, the, this doesn't happen. Um, so it's important to, to point that out. But in a few sectors, the effect has been tremendous. And once again, the point we're making here is that it's not about subsidies. Even if you got rid of subsidies, you'd still have an incredible competitive advantage from a closed off market um, and something that needs to be that needs to be taken into account by policymakers uh, in the EU, of course, but in the US equally. So you made some recommendations in your report for how the European Union could combat some of these issues. And of course, the United States has a very different set of you know, legal and political institutions. But what, what kind of recommendations do you think would also apply in, in the context of the United States? Well, <laughs> well, actually, I was reviewing the recommendations um, as I prepare for the podcast. And unsurprisingly, in a way, a lot of them actually apply almost directly to the U.S. as well. Our first recommendation is a simple one. And it's just to say that there needs to be a theoretical groundwork uh, done and and you know, continued from our report, um, just to make clear what a home advantage is, uh, protected home advantage is, um, just to explain um, that it's different from subsidies, so that people talk about it, so that um, there is there is a recognition of the competitive advantage that can just emerge from other practices than subsidies. So that's that's the first thing we need to say. And then also important to clarify which sectors are prone to a, to a home advantage, because as I said, you know, it's not all of them. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't address just all products coming from China, all firms, Chinese firms the same way. Um, we, we, should be, we should be clear about what's the, uh, what are the sectors that are the most concerning. Second, um, there, there's a case to be, to be, named, to, to, to be made that um, there still needs to be some efforts to remove the source of the distortion. Um, to allow foreign firms to also capture and benefit from China's scale that, you know, uh, for, for, for hopefuls out there that could still be through negotiations of market access under uh, say a phase two agreement or just continued US-China um, negotiations um, in, in, in the next few years could also be through efforts to get a better China GPA proposals. Um, now, as of today, of course, it's unclear that either of these are completely realistic or at least that they're high likelihood solutions. So it, it is still something we say in the report, you, you, need to, you need to hope for the best and you still need to be pushing for market opening because that would be the simplest, most effective solution. Now, if that doesn't happen, and in the meantime, a third option is to build greater scale. Um, and you can do that in two ways. You can build greater scale at home and the US, much as the EU, has a huge internal market. And the current efforts we're seeing um, with, with the US investing heavily in infrastructure, in particular, 
modernizing and, and improving its domestic infrastructure can actually be a huge boost for similar economies of scales uh, for US companies. So that's the first way to go about it. The second is to build scales with allies. And here, you know, it's, it's not so much uh, creating a common market and just what one player in each industry, that would be a little bit too top down, but you can support scale building in certain industries. For, for example, through the definition of common standards in one industry so that you're absolutely sure that a Japanese player can be selling on the European market, the US market um, easily. And so that it will be able to reap the benefits from the scale of, uh, we'll say, a, an OECD-sized market. It could also be through greater efforts to make national players in each of those each of those geographies interoperable. So the idea that that idea is really important around data, in particular, in digital sectors, um, where promoting the free flow of data, promoting shared or compatible or interoperable at least government rules around data. Uh, would be of huge help to build um, the, a similar scale as in China. And then, of course, you could think about doing some level of joint R&D, some level of joint projects. Uh, but of course, that's, that's just a little bit harder. And then the last option that's just slightly less applicable to, to the US is to develop a defensive toolbox. Let me explain here why. The thing is, the EU here, I would argue at least, the EU is more advanced um, than the US in developing a defensive toolbox um, around issues that are relevant to the home advantage. Um, for example, they have public procurement directives. The EU has public procurement directives that allow tendering authorities throughout Europe to dismiss abnormally low bids. And so if that's used well, then you know bids that come in at 10% or 30% below market prices can be discarded as unfair. Um, the EU also has an upcoming international procurement instrument that would make it possible for the EU Commission to restrict access to the EU market, public procurement market, to companies that come from a country that isn't equally and reciprocally open. So those are really EU-specific. But in the case of the US, there are other tools available, defensive tools available, uh, for example, anti-dumping tools. Um, where they're relevant, where they're um, easy, easy to apply um, because of the price difference I just discussed earlier. And then the second option uh, would be to push at the WTO trilaterally or plurilaterally um, for you know, a revision of the definition of subsidies um, to include the home advantage as a, as a subsidy. That gets a little bit technical and it's a little bit too, too specific. But that might be one avenue as well. Um, so, so those are the those are the recommendations I think that do apply to the U.S. So, do you expect the advantages accruing to Chinese companies from this home advantage to get better or or worse in coming years? I, I mean, I, I sense it's probably going to become you know worse given that you mentioned data interoperability could help, and you know trends in China's market towards tighter data regulation and a couple of other things you've noted. I mean, these trends seem to be moving away from that kind of interoperability. So, so what's your sense for the kind of medium-term future for U.S. and, and other foreign firms with, with, with respect to this? 
Well, the problem is I agree with you, right? Um, the way home advantage would diminish, the way it would be solved for US companies and for EU companies would be if China were to drastically open up its market uh, so that other players, foreign players, could take advantage of its scale. And, you know, what, what, what you're pointing to and what we're seeing at the moment, especially the past 24 months, I would argue, um, is, is actually more of a move to a closing down. Of course, China has proceeded to peacefully formal openings um, in, in the recent past. Think about financial services or auto. There's been a lot of announcement, but, you know, from everything we hear on the ground, informal barriers have remained extremely high. And so the problem we point out in, in our report just remain because it's not just formal barrier. It's also informal barrier that um, can cause a, a home advantage. And the latest policy signals do not point to greater opening, especially in strategic sectors, especially in sectors that are you know, core or very important to U.S.'s con competitiveness or resilience. Um, if you think especially about China's push for self-sufficiency, um, this is not going to open the market further uh, to U.S. companies, or at least we, we don't believe so. It doesn't mean that in certain sectors, the situation might not improve, but I think the overall trend uh, is not to a decrease in China's home advantage. Um, so I have to be a little bit pessimistic here, yeah. China Business Review is a production of the U.S. China Business Council. It is also an audio companion to our digital magazine of the same name. You can always read more articles about the business and economic aspects of the U.S.-China relationship at chinabusinessreview.com. If you like the show, do leave it a rating and review as it will help other people find it and feel free to share it directly with your colleagues as well. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back soon.